You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Lovely to have you here for our second event in the Excellent City series at M Pavilion. Um, I'd like to start today's uh, event by providing an acknowledgement of country. So the City of Melbourne respectfully acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we govern, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and uh, people of the Eastern Kulin and pays respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge and honour the unbroken spiritual, cultural and political connection to the Wurundjeri, Bonirong, Jajawarung, Tungurong and Wadawarung peoples of the, Eastern, that the East, of the Eastern Kulin have to this unique place, Nam, for more than 2,000 generations. We are committed to our reconciliation journey because at its heart, reconciliation is about strengthening relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples for the benefit of all Victorians. The Excellent City series is part of the City of Melbourne's Design Excellence Program. City Design established the series in 2021 to explore what design excellence means for Melbourne. Probably should have introduced myself. I might have forgotten to do that. I'm Jocelyn Chu, everyone. Um, I am the Director of City Design at the City of Melbourne. My excuse, I have a very busy job and a, a sub two-year-old child. <laughs> so at times I am frazzled, but this is me. Um, this is the real me. So. Um, so last year we explored topics of equity, resilience and Aboriginality. And this year we're exploring new event modes, recognising that panel discussions, while useful, are not the only way to build inclusive dialogues. So, our Excellent City series comprises of four events. Our first event, Build Your Own City, was a hands-on collaborative all-ages workshop which envisioned a healthy and equitable cardboard city for all. Uh, it was led by children. A lot of the Vox Pops were led by children and that was wonderful. This event, Enduring City, uncovers low-carbon, low-embodied energy materials for projects of all scales, and we're going to hear from a very diverse panel about how they're doing this. We'll also hear from the city about our own experts uh, and the work that we're doing at the City of Melbourne. Embracing Country, event number three, will explore living with, designing with, and caring for country. And Design Futures, our last event, will explore through performance art the notion of design excellence. Before we get into today's activities, a couple of housekeeping items. This event is being photographed. Photographs may be used in City of Melbourne, uh, promo materials and projects, including websites and social media. So if you have any concerns about being photographed, please let us know, um, or, or you can just let the photographer know as well, um, and we, we'll be happy to oblige. Um, if you would like to keep up to date with our projects and, um, and the Excellent City 
um, series, uh, please feel free to scan the QR code on any one of our posters. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Krista Milne. Krista is the co-director of climate change and city resilience at the City of Melbourne and one of seven chief heat officers globally. The position of chief heat officer is a first for Australia and part of an international movement to improve how cities handle heat in a warming world. Our teams are working closely together to assess the embodied carbon of the entire Capital Works program at the City of Melbourne and to better understand opportunities to reduce the environmental impact of the city's built environments. We are obviously co-chairing today's discussion uh, and, and the, um, uh, the following uh, collaborative exercise, which I hope you'll all stay for. At the end of the panel discussion, we're looking forward to everyone participating in this collaborative collage activity. Um, I will now invite Krista to talk further about the event and to introduce our panellists. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Jocelyn, and thank you for inviting uh, me uh, to be here to co-chair the event. I'm used to co-doing everything because I work in a job share, which is a great delight of my life. Um, hence, I'm co-director of climate change and city resilience at the city, as well as the co-chief heat officer. Um, so, uh, City of Melbourne has had a long history of really ambitious leading targets and action on climate change. Um, uh, we're now aiming for zero net emissions across the city by 2040 and 100% renewable energy for the municipality by 2030. Bold targets, very difficult, but um, with uh, committed action and conversations and discussion and um, engagement across all levels of um, government and community, we think we can get there. And we know that we need to get there. We given that, the council declared a climate and biodiversity emergency in... Um, uh, 2019 and since then we've really uh, developed an action plan about what actions we need to prioritise the most. And some of those are really focused on that renewable energy target, uh, which um, we've been making some significant progress uh, and uh, also thinking about the buildings that make up our city. Our, build, our city has been here for at least 180 years and it will be here for at least another 180 years and there's a huge amount um, of stored carbon and sustainability in that enduring city that we need to think about and maintain. And so some of the things that we're working on uh, is really how do we create um, that future city recognising that everything that's standing there today needs to be um, updated, maintained uh, and be more efficient and adapted to our future climate and future energy sources um, without actually losing that what's stored in those buildings, both from a heritage perspective as well as a carbon perspective. Uh, we've made massive progress in our own operational emissions. So we've actually reduced our own operational emissions by 76% over 10 years. Uh, and we've done that by upgrading our lights um, and our plant equipment for efficiency. We've invested in solar on many of our buildings. Um, but more recently, uh, when we've sort of exhausted our, what we can do directly, we have invested in partnership with uh, about 25 other organisations collectively to um, support 
uh, new renewable energy, new wind farms being built in regional Victoria, Victoria to provide our um, energy through a program called the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project. Um, but recognise that that's only part of the story. There's this thing that's called embodied carbon and how do we tackle that? And it's a new and emerging issue, as Jocelyn said, and we're being delighted to work with the city design team uh, to attack that. Um, and it's not well understood. It's not well understood by local governments and it's fast becoming a, a focus for local governments and industry. Uh, so our operational emissions are about 11,000 tonnes per year and an early assessment of City of Melbourne's embodied carbon emissions over our, the four-year four lifespan is about 200,000 tonnes uh, of emissions. So uh, you can see the scale and the importance of this conversation um, tonight. The industry is moving there. Uh, rating tools have been a hugely important thing in the, the energy world. I'm sure many of you are well-versed in, in them. Uh, Neighbours is starting to look at an embodied carbon tool, so, um, and Climate Active is uh, the uh, federal government standard that certifies carbon neutrality, is also thinking about how, how does carbon, um, embodied carbon work with their system. We're partnering with industry leaders in the, in an, another great acronym, MECLA, the Materials and Embodied Carbon Leaders Alliance, to... <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Great to see you here. Um, to learn from the best, really understand what does the industry need to do to tackle this issue? What data do we need? What do we need to know about all the materials that we purchase? What is the embodied carbon and what are alternatives? And how do we, um, how do we uh, understand uh, how that all comes together? Some of our developments that you might know about, Queen Victoria Market is going through a major renewal and we have um, incorporated embodied carbon considerations into that project and also Green Line, uh, which is uh, improving the, bringing a, a biodiversity greening corridor across the north bank of the river, right from just opposite over here up through um, to Docklands essentially. It also incorporates embodied carbon into um, our consideration of materials and um, our contracts. Contracts. So we are making project progress, but we also have a lot to learn and really looking forward to this discussion, which brings me to our excellent panel. Um, so I'll um, just introduce uh, everyone and then we'll have a series of questions. Um, first of all, uh, next to Jocelyn, we've got Masura Motka, who's a registered architect and project architect at Six Degrees Architects. Masura's work has a strong focus on sustainability and life cycle of buildings, lovely to hear. Um, you're currently working on the Munro Library and Community Hub, which is a City of Melbourne project up near the Queen Vic Market. Uh, welcome, Matsura. Then we have Rob Neville, Managing Director of um, Revival Projects, um, which is a Melbourne-based uh, building practice that speci specialises in salvaging construction and demolition waste to create new furniture and interiors uh, for architectural projects. So, welcome. We've got Claire Parry, Director of Sustainability at Development Victoria, and who was previously founding chair of the Australian Passive House Association and Better Buildings lead at Hip V Hike. Uh, and you're a leading sustainability expert, so really looking forward to hearing about that work. And finally, Grady Pearson from uh, Team Lead of Sustainable Homes Program at Sustainability Victoria uh, and leading the work on the Seven Star Homes Program. So, 
maybe put your hands together for, to welcome our panel. Thank you. So we're now going to get into a few Q&As for the panel. So this is to all of you, so I'll let um, you nominate who goes first. Um, what do you think are some of the greatest barriers to reducing embodied carbon in your respective work? Anyone want to take that? <laughs> Claire, over to you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll go first. So, um, so at DV, we have uh, an embodied, uh, sorry, a carbon neutral by 2030 mandate. And that includes scope three. So our work is cut out ahead of us. Um, and I think the main, many of the barriers that we see in the industry are around data gaps, around people not knowing what to do, or, uh, you know, there are some great practitioners out there uh, and we don't know they exist. So there's a data gap. So the circular economy, um, you know, sort of, it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is everywhere and it is everything. Um, there's also a bit of a distraction around recycling as opposed to the circular and economic benefits, so the business outcomes. Um, so, you know, the, people need to make those linkages between stuff that has probably, be, probably been happening for decades and just needs that extra bit of support. So there's information and knowledge. Um, there's a lot of perception gaps around it will cost more, it will be harder, it will take longer. Uh, we, we do try to unpick that in our work as well. Um, and yeah, I, I, I mentioned the distraction of recycling. It is very real, it is everywhere. Um, and we do try to focus on linking together, not just the solutions, but our work across multiple parts of Victoria, because we do have projects um, that exist everywhere across the state. Might jump to the other end of the panel and have a different perspective. Um, so from my perspective and from my experience um, as an architect and designer, I think the biggest challenge is the materials that we specify for a project. Um, the availability of materials that would comply with certain requirements like regulations or um, cost you know, is a big factor, but also now sustainability standards. So, some, so material that is recyclable, that would you know, have very low embodied energy. Because if you look around, most buildings are constructed from concrete, steel and aluminium, which have very high embodied energy in them. So that's one of the biggest barriers for us, like to specify something that could meet all those points. I mean, technology is catching up, but not fast enough. And, and as Claire said, there's, there's a lot of experts around, but I think just trying to find the right people to give advice or do the research and get the technology to catch up with us. I think that's one of the biggest challenges from my perspective. Uh, Rob, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I feel like um, as an industry and as a culture, we've, um, we've lost the value of resourcefulness um, and it's become such a massive departure from resourcefulness that our infrastructure and our processes and our systems and our supply chains all support linear consumption. And that's been going for a really long time. And so when we talk about barriers to entry, I think a big one is comfort zones. Um, the people that are under a huge amount of pressure in bringing a project to life, key stakeholders, um, they embrace familiarity. You're paid to do a certain job and when you've done it before and you've been trained how to do it, chances are you're, you're lean towards doing the same thing again. And what we need now is disruption. And so pushing people out of those comfort zones uh, and being empathetic and working with them 
that's a huge part of um, what we try to bring to the table. Um, I also think that that protracted departure from resourcefulness has normalized indulgence. Um, the way we nominate, the way we specify, the way we design, it's become normal and so there's a, an incredible amount of missed opportunities that I see as an existing materials consultant. That's a big part of what we do, um, which is going in and helping people understand the value of what they already have and the relevance of what they already have. Um, broadly speaking, most people are massively surprised when we show them how valuable and how relevant the existing resources are that we already have. I always use the analogy of like, you don't go to the supermarket to buy new stuff without looking in the fridge to, to have a little look at what you've already got. And in design and construction, we've like, we've forgotten that the fridge exists. And um, so there's a massive immediate opportunity there to look at what we already have. And so I guess through this discussion, that'll be my, the lens that I see and you know, my perspective will be around existing resources. Um, yeah. Wonderful. And uh, Grady. Okay. So the most of the work that I do is with residential builders. And I think the barrier to red residential builders, you know, adopting embodied energy is that it, it doesn't exist in that sector in Australia just yet. Um, it's taken us a long time to work with builders to see the value of operational emissions and, and energy efficiency as important to a build um, and embodied energy or embodied carbon is that next step um, and without builders really knowing about it and without readily accessible and easy tools to help measure and, and reduce um, it's just something that doesn't exist in that space and it's something that we're looking to do in the future a lot at SV. So there's a few barriers there, um, and you know that's 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 fairly common when we're tackling a new part of um, changing the way that we've always done things. Right? Um, this question is okay. We'll see. There's some great barriers. What what can we do about it? So, and particularly thinking about what government's role is in this in this space to lead. Um, Maybe Claire and Grady, if you can think about and share some initiatives, tools or collaborations that you think is needed to drive um, action on reducing embodied carbon. I think I'm up. Um, so it is true that a rising tide lifts all boats. So I think regulation needs to fall in behind us to, uh, to you know, to, to lift the general activity in the industry. Um, regulation around what we shouldn't be doing as well, uh, you know, waste to landfill. Um, we, we do have a lot of projects at Development Victoria where we are trying to test the limits of what's possible. Um, we are testing, you know, what a, a materials recovery strategy looks like for a building being demolished. Um, of course, knowing that that building should be demolished first and that we can't do better with refurbishment is probably step one. Um, so regulation is, is, is part of it. Um, putting in place the systems as well to support industry to, uh, to develop um, what needs to, you know, the, the data systems, the, the business incentives, the, uh, the disincentives as, as well, 
the proper valuation of, um, of good outcomes, um, I think, is something that we need to support. So um, making sure that we properly cost those externalities around the social and environmental costs of virgin materials and taking those virgin materials from the ground. There's, there's a whole system that needs to be supported to develop around um, circular economy, around embodied carbon. I think one of the easiest things we might be able to do, step one, is to develop or, you know, to choose a tool for all of us to agree on embodied carbon and how to calculate embodied carbon. <laughs> I can see a lot of nods. Um, because that is something that it, it boggles people's minds that we, we actually currently all don't agree on how to do it. And until we agree, it's very hard to start doing something about it. So I, guess, I think that's step one. I more or less have the same answer. Regulation is, is really, really important. Um, but before we can even regulate, we need to measure and actually work out what is happening and, and the pathway to get that regulation happening. Um, so there's lots of things happening in the backgrounds with um, neighbours and, and GBCA um, assisted by SV working out on a, you know, working out um, how to do embodied carbon, building a tool for neighbours for embodied energy. Um, so that's really, really exciting and those sorts of projects enable us to start that long process to, to regulation but I don't think without regulation there'll be much incentive for the sector to change because it's an industry that's ultimately driven by money. And maybe just to jump in there, Matsuru, in terms of that question around regulation and working with your clients, um, you know, they're generally business don't want regulation. <laughs> um, have you got any perspective on that in terms of your clients who might be, you know, leading? Do they are they seeking, you know, everyone to be regulated so they? Well, it is really helpful yeah. Yeah. to have clients that champion sustainability. So with the project that I'm working on, um, the, the main client is City of Melbourne. And clearly you guys really champion, you know, put sustainability forward. And with the project that um, we're doing, we had to comply with Green Star and Well Ratings. So that drove a lot of um, the decision making with the material selection. And um, it wasn't just the architects that were in charge or responsible for specifying the materials. We actually relied heavily on um, the ESD consultant to give um, a lot of advice and, and, and give us a lot of input with the life cycle assessment or what's suitable, what can we do, what's an alternative. Um, an example would be, say, for concrete, instead of using you know, brand new spanking concrete, we actually tried to put in a percentage of recycled content and that helps a lot with the embodied energy of the concrete that we've used. Um, but just taking a step back, going back to the project, um, in terms of reducing the amount of embodied energy in the building, the first thing that we like to do when we approach a new project is to see what's on the site. And with the Munro site, we actually retained uh, a big portion of the facade at the corner of Queen and Therry. And that actually formed um, the new facade for you know, the retail tenancy and also the library on level two and a tavern on level one. So with that, we've already you know, saved a fair bit of material instead of introducing new stuff. But the other thing we did as well was to recycle all the bricks that were claimed from the site and we used those materials to build um, a, a sort of like a brick tower next door um, within the site. And by reusing a lot of those materials, I think that really helps, you know, uh, with the embodied energy of the project, but also it also has a bit of like a connection to the past of the site, a sense of belonging, and also, you know, just a bit, a bit more story to the site instead of just seeing something brand new. Wonderful. We tried to salvage more materials, but <laughs> yeah, we tried. Great. Joss. 
Thank you. Um, Mastero, you've segued into my oh, question. God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's all right. It's all good. So I might actually go straight to Robbie. And um, my question is, what is a recent project where you've consciously reduced embodied carbon in design and delivery? Um, and what are or were the key challenges? I might talk about our app that we've recently launched. So we've created an app um, which is entirely free to use and there's no money exchanges hands on it. <clears throat> and it's, um, it's a community-led solution to try and decrease what we send to landfill as a, as a broader community and industry. Um, <clears throat> and a way of connecting with people uh, who might be handling existing resources that they may not have a use for. Um, so it's not about stuff that you're trying to sell and make money for. It's about working together to connect with people, um, to secure sustainable outcomes for existing resources that don't belong in landfill. And so from that standpoint, when we talk about embodied carbon, when you use an existing resource, you cancel out the embodied carbon that would have been associated with manufacture of uh, new construction materials. But uh, if you're dividing, diverting them from landfill, uh, it's like a double win. And so that's why we say things like the most sustainable materials in the world are the ones that already exist. You simply can't get close to them. And as a statistic that you may already be familiar with, construction in Australia accounts for half of what goes to landfill. And we're talking about 30 million tonnes a year. And um, so we created this app um, and in its most simple use as an instrument or a tool for people, it, it is just, I'm uploading these leftover materials or this stuff I don't want, and I'm gonna connect with somebody uh, who may have a use for it. So we try to cancel out that horrible scenario where one man uh, on St Kilda Road is paying to destroy something and throw it in landfill, and another man on Sturt Street 200 metres away um, is paying to harvest and consume or manufacture and consume those exact same new materials. So it's kind of a way of connecting people together to increase the likelihood of, of reuse. That's its most simple uh, sort of way of working. But what I, what I hope we begin to see, and like I said, it's totally free. We have no commercial vested interest in uh, pushing it, you know, it's not a hard sell. We've just put it out there because we believe the industry is ready for it. What we hope to see is that the broader design industry will use it as a tool to design out waste. And if you're nominating a, a tile in a hotel and there's 200 bathrooms, um, it's become normalized that 10% waste will be ordered by the contractor um, to deliver that contract. 10% waste, that's insane for that to be normal. And so what we hope the app will do will empower people in the design industry to take a photo of that tile while it's still at sample approval phase, way before tender docs, upload it on the app as proposed for being available in 18 months and put it out there to the community um, to give an opportunity for someone to turn around and say, yeah, that's exactly what I need for my mosaic project, my ceramic project, my construction project. Um, so that's a, a, a way that we hope to see it used by, by the design um, community. 
Um, so, and that's how, like, a, an immediately actionable way to design out waste. And by doing that, it's a really simple tool, and we've structured it so that it's user-friendly, minimize dialogue, connect with a large volume of people. Um, there's an immediate reduction in embodied carbon, and it's a win-win because you're not sending things to landfill either. Um, Robbie, I really love the accessibility um, and usability of the tools that you're creating. And, uh, um, just before we move on um, to another question, I'm just, can you tell the group what um, the app is called so they can look it up? Yeah. Sorry, I should have said that. <laughs> I'm not a salesman. Um, it's called the Revival Cooperative. It's available on the App Store for iPhone and uh, Android. And you've also brought a gift for, um, I don't know how many copies you've brought, but you've also brought a gift of um, something to help with policy, I think. Do you want to just yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks. So I'm guessing there's a few people here from the design industry. Um, how many of you in your studios or your practices have a carbon neutral certification? So a few hands going up, maybe about 20% of the people. How many of you have some kind of policy around how you handle existing resources? That's a hard zero. Or was that one over there? Oh, were you just waving? <laughs> That's not an auction, don't freak out. <laughs> um, I've never heard of one in Australia. And, and that puts a spotlight on um, the issue that I mentioned earlier, sort of saying, you know, we're going to the supermarket without looking in the fridge. Um, there's no, uh, there's no formal policies and there's, n there's certainly no controls in planning permission schemes that provide any type of legal framework or formal standard operating procedure um, in terms of how we approach existing resource. And we have a war on waste. We're talking about 30 million tonnes from the construction industry going to landfill every year. And landfills are filling up, like it's, it's broken, it's not sustainable, and it's, we believe there's solutions and action we can take to immediately remedy the problem. So, um, I'm not a policy writer, so it's pretty haphazard, um, but I typed out an existing materials or existing resource policy, and I reckon I've got enough copies for everyone here. I've got about 50, 60 copies in my bag. Um, and it, you know, I say I'm not a policy writer, <clears throat> so it's going to be, it's going to be. I'm a builder. It's going to be my take on the situation, and it's super succinct because I wanted to fit it on one sheet of paper, printed on both sides. Thanks, um, Robbie. I might just um, add too that we've actually had at the City of Melbourne for quite a long time a furniture reuse program in place, a street furniture reuse program that is. So um, we've actually got our principal industrial designer here, uh, Ian Dryden. <laughs> yeah, so he's, um, he's obviously, you know, he and, um, and the team have been responsible for over the last 30 or so years for designing a lot of the street furniture that you see around Melbourne. It's made out of stainless steel because we can continuously refurbish and reuse it. Um, it, it um, we, you know, we put items that we aren't using into storage and then we bring them out um, for, um, for future projects. So we're sort of... Um, uh, that's something that's been in place at the city for a long time. I think one that we're quite proud of and it continues to evolve. Um, but you're right. I don't think it's entrenched in policy and that's something that we'll, we all could work. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you, Robbie. My next question is actually for um, Claire and Grady. 
So, how is government responding to industry movement on measuring and reducing embodied carbon? And how can government policy and regulation respond to maximise outcomes, enable innovation, and impact or disrupt the entire industry? Just that little question. <laughs> so, one of the things that will be changing this year in the National Construction Code is the introduction of a whole-of-home um, energy budget for residential construction. Um, what that means is that builders and people buying new homes, you know, for the first time really have an upfront idea of how much energy their home will use each year for the operation of that home, what their bills are expected to be and all of that kind of stuff. Um, what we're working on at SV at the moment with our First Rate 5 team, First Rate 5 is the program we have that is used to measure all that whole of home stuff, um, is to build and pilot an embodied energy tool um, integrated within First Rate 5. So your energy assessor will do your energy modelling. There's a ton of information in that tool that is linked to the construction details of the home um, and also the whole of home um, component which looks at operational energy. Um, so the, hopefully um, we'll be able to uh, prove the case for this tool, um, pilot it with builders in the next couple of years um, and then go on to hopefully inform some policy to get that incorporated into construction codes and that's a really, really exciting um, tool for us because it almost puts you know, thermal performance, operational energy and embodied energy into the one software platform, one certificate, um, making it really easy to regulate and set, you know, kind of targets across a number of years. So that's really exciting work that we're looking at at the moment. Is that um, just new builds? Uh, new builds and, and, yeah, to an extent, um, major renovations and things. I'm not sure how it will look in that, that major renovation space just yet, though. So, um, so Development Victoria is an agency. We don't we don't write policy. I'm afraid to say, um, but you know, one thing we do do is we get stuck in and we we test stuff. So if if there's a policy that you know if there's something that looks like a great idea, like mandating or committing to carbon neutral by 2030, committing to calculating a carbon footprint for every single project that we do. Uh, by 2025, um, we'll, we'll do it, we'll test it, we'll see if it's possible. Um, we also participate in standards creation, um, such as the ASHRAE uh, standard for whole of life carbon, which includes um, upfront, embodied, uh, operational maintenance, all of that stuff, end of life. Um, sometimes it's our role to get in there and test stuff, and then other times it's government's role to just get out of the way. So um, we, we, we sort of, you know, we take a if not us, then who sort of mandate to some projects, but I think sometimes it's government's job to to remove the barriers. Um, and I would say that everyone should sort of maintain some hope that there are fantastic people in government who are really passionate about this and are trying to make stuff happen, trying to put in place the right tools and regulations and incentives and also try to remove those barriers. So, yeah, we have a range of roles um, and there are... It, government is complex, takes time. Industry's doing a lot of great stuff. Government is definitely aware of all of that. Um, and yeah, trying to make it all easier. Wonderful. Uh, I can certainly um, empathise with your position. Often at City of Melbourne, we're in the same position because we don't regulate. We're often advocating to state government to um, increase the regulation. 
Um, we're in the boat of testing, trying, leading, and hoping that others replicate, and that's certainly happened um, a lot. Uh, so uh, it's a it's a different role for government to play, but it's an important role. So well done um, on that, Claire. So. Um, Getting to the last question before we get into a bit of an activity is what do you see, and we'll start maybe with Masura, what do you see as the next steps um, in your pursuit of reducing embodied carbon in designing buildings uh, for your um, specialty? I guess we've sort of, we sort of have the idea of reducing materials like with high embodied energy down pat, well, sort of, but we are getting there. But I think the next steps would be pretty much like um, what Robbie said, to reuse and recycle materials. And um, at Six Degrees, that's something that we've done a long time ago without being aware that it helps with embodied energy. It's just something that we like to do, you know, get um, materials from different sites and then put it together and make it look pretty again. But I think that's, that will be the next steps, I reckon. Think more about where the material comes from, how, can, how it can be used um, to perform as it should, and also think about how it would be recycled. Um, I think just having that awareness and knowledge would, re would be really helpful, and I think as um, designers and people in position um, to specify things, um, yeah, I think it's important that we're all knowledgeable about it. Wonderful. And Robbie, what do you think the next steps are? Um, I think at a community level, it'll... Um, I think it's more likely that businesses and individuals will take action that makes change before there's legislation introduced to force them to do so. And when that legislation does get introduced, it'll probably be, potentially be a significant amount of time before we see real impact on that. So again, looking at it through the lens of resourcefulness and what we already have, I believe we should start measuring what we already have right now. Um, I think the... I think it would be amazing if someone demonstrated enough vulnerability to declare how much embodied carbon they put in landfill on a development site. And I think that would begin to solve what we have at the moment, which is a complete abdication of accountability around the volume of waste we create. So for example, Six Degrees, who, uh, I've been impressed and inspired by for years. Um, they could be someone <laughs> to notate on That's their That's an drawings. action for you, Matsura. Challenge accepted. <laughs> Calculate the amount, of the amount of sequestered or embodied carbon represented by the existing resources that you cannot use and declare that to the industry and then calculate the amount of waste that you generate in bringing your project to life. And I think if that, if someone demonstrated the vulnerability to do that, which we have the, we have the ability to do that now, we have the formulas, they're available online, we have the knowledge of these existing resources, I think that will immediately catalyze a movement towards uh, creative and innovative solutions to decrease than the volume that gets sent to landfill and the volume that we create of waste uh, throughout construction. So I think it's on us, if you know what I mean, like, um, yeah. And I think that's a challenge to everyone in the audience to think about that in their day job, um, not just Masura, so I've taken it on too. 
Right, Jocelyn. Great. All right, everyone. This is the um, interactive part of the, um, our event. We want to hear from you. We've got a fantastic group here um, from all different black backgrounds and disciplines. We've got four tables dotted around the pavilion with collage material. We would love it if you could spend the next 20 minutes uh, collaging your vision for an enduring city. Um, and we will be on hand to chat with you, answer any questions, um, have a drink with you, whatever. After 20 minutes, we're going to look to you to share your visions with us. And who knows, something really innovative, something disruptive might come out of it. Um, so that's it, jump to it, and then we'll reconvene in 20 minutes to, to, to um, hear your ideas. Uh, Danny? All right, everyone, we're going to start with our first vision for an enduring city. Uh, Danny, who am I going to? We are going to Lewis. Where is Lewis? Lewis, hi. <laughs> Can you introduce yourself and your vision? Um, I'm Sean. Um, this is Louis. Um, we came in at the last minute, but I just wanted to add that this is my contribution. That, like, waste or resources is exciting and sparkly and is, yeah, that's all I've really got to say, to, to be honest. I came in right at the end. And Louis, do you, do you want to add to that? I had a very small part in this, and uh, I really want to emphasise uh, Enduring Cities using materials again. So I think I selected this hopefully recycled material and yeah that's what I'm okay that's it's now been recycled I like that though I think there's something in that for all of us uh thank you hi my name is Priya and um with Lucy and some other folks worked on the library for everything concept so the idea is that we I don't know if you've seen those headlines where it's like in the future you will own nothing but it feels very dystopic because it's like Uber's going to own everything. But I like the idea of a sharing economy that's based on the way that we use libraries. And that kind of like you will own nothing is more uplifting because it's like you don't need a sewing machine of your own because you can go get the best one at the library. Or you don't need to have a fancy cake pan or, you know, a circular saw or whatever it is. It's all there for you like we have for books. I love that. Wonderful. Thank you. Who's up next? Who would like to share? We'll go over to this one if there's no one else from this. All right, there's some enthusiastic visioners here. I'm talking apparently. I tried not to. What's your name? Please introduce yourself. I'm Paul. Uh, so we were very free form. Um, the people in the kind of northwest of the city didn't really know what the people in the <laughs> southeast of the city we're doing, so we, we feel like it's very organic, but there were no arguments. Um, so there were four themes that we decided on. A city that's very green, looking out onto the city from this aspect, we can see that it's very green and it's something that we want to see a lot more of. Uh, an edible city, turning that green space into productive space. Um, what was the third? I'm leave that till last. Um, oh, a, a water-sensitive city. So we have a water body running through the city and we know that there are areas of the city that are a catchment. So making the most of that resource 
uh, for good and ensuring that um, when there's a lot of it, it doesn't create floods. And then this more controversial footpath here asking, <laughs> does everything have to be bluestone? <laughs> Can we not Ooh, be... controversy. Uh, controversial. Ooh. Can we not be led by this idea of uh, using waste, using what is around us or what might come into our possession and use that, not necessarily for footpaths, but um, uh, turning waste into, uh, into new places. There you go. <laughs> Wonderful. I love it. And so organised. Four themes. We'll take that away. Thank you. Well done. Well done, everyone. Hi. Um, so our city started with a bit of a circular theme of us all being um, connected. Um, we've got a bit of, we've got a lot going on. So we're kind of based around the sun with some, uh, yeah, northern orientation there. Um, we've reused uh, some building materials in a um, apartment building here with a green roof. Um, we've also gone into some smaller local communities with, uh, yeah, some, I don't know, community gardens and, yeah, lots of nature all um, throughout our city. Anything else? Um, I think we've got the... This, this is the steps to... Uh, stepping stones to use less concrete, someone's contribution. <laughs> and, yeah, I think we've got some pretty cool uh, words here. So, too good to waste. Um, yeah, transforming construction and a city that cares for its environment. <laughs> Thank you. That's wonderful. Uh, who have we got next? <laughs> this. What's your name, or what's the name of the group? Okay. You guys up that way. Uh, very little is stuck to this. Ah. All right, where to begin? All good. We're going to start with uh, this old and new one over here with the archway. Oh, uh, yeah, so this corner here, I was just looking at the book with all the um, architectures from ancient time to like 20th centuries, and I realized the one on the border is like something growing from the place with its local materials. And then 20th century, a lot of modern cities and uh, buildings, and then the Chinese um, Great War, a lot of the materials delivered overseas from China, like the project I'm doing at the moment, trying to local source locally, but yeah, it's cheaper from China, let's do it. Like, so if we can, both of them exist with a reason, uh, but can we combine them like to make it more like a harmonious way? Yeah. Wonderful. I love that. Um, and we had like a bit of a quadrant theme over here of just not being afraid to reuse really, really precious, pretty heritage buildings that already exist uh, for things like people's uh, bedrooms for a 21st century home, 
Um, even if you find railing along really, really old things, don't be afraid to use that for, say, a uh, train or a bus. Because <laughs> um, we're going to need public transport. And if we have public transport, maybe we're a chance at a city that doesn't have so many cars and we can actually paint the road funky colours and have it playful. <laughs> Um, and we had a really big theme for biophilia over here, seeing how much we can touch up our um, current and future infrastructure with, um, with greenery, even uh, a wind turbine perhaps. Um, had a lot of themes around happiness, um, no, what is it, no mining, uh, nuclear waste is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Just these friendly reminders in case anyone forgot. <laughs> I love those ideas. Thank you so much. Um, in March, we will, if everything goes to plan, be releasing a draft Future Cities um, framework or, no, Future Streets framework. Uh, Danny's actually running this, pro leading this project for us. And so I love the suggestions around colour and, and maybe mixing it up with a bit of materiality. We'll see how we go. Thank you. Amazing. Okay. That might be it. Krista, thank you. And um, I also want to thank our panellists uh, for all their time uh, and their effort in the planning of this event. Thank you to the audience. But also, lastly but not um, least, is to thank, you, thank my team. So all of the City Design staff members who have um, enabled tonight's event, they're, they're not easy events to put together. Um, and I know Danny in particular and her partner, Jared, spent the weekend hunting down collage materials. So thank you, you guys. <laughs>